Before we get started, I want to invite you to a really fun event coming up. Veritas is teaming with young Catholic professionals to host an Oktoberfest from 4 to 7 p.m. on Saturday, October 28th. And everyone is invited. Bring your families, invite young adults, older adults, children to this joy-filled evening of faith, food, and fellowship. We're going to be joined that evening by Catholic Answers apologist Joe Heschmeyer, who authored the book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus, and he's going to give us a talk that night on the Eucharist. So come out and join us. Again, it's Saturday, October 28th at the Italian Center in Stanford. For more information and tickets, go to VeritasCatholic.com and click on the Events tab. Today on Let Me Be Frank, we are joined by a truly excellent evangelist, apostle, and courageous voice in the wilderness. And he offers his message with such charity and love. His name is Jason Everett. He is the founder of The Chastity Project, and he's an expert on chastity and all its related issues. So he's going to have an excellent talk with Bishop Frank Caggiano today. Make sure you keep your radio right here at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Steve, Frank good Caggiano. Good morning to you. Good to see you, as always. Hey, Excellency. Yep. Yeah, great yep. to see you. You have a great guest on. Tell us. Oh, my gosh. This, this guy is truly unbelievable. Actually, before before I introduce him, I'll just tell, I'll just let folks know. My oldest son, especially, is a big fan of our guest. I think our guest is one of the most articulate, passionate, compelling speakers on chastity and theology of the body that I have ever heard. So with that as a pre-introduction, let me introduce Jason Everett. Jason Everett has spoken to more than a million people about the virtue of chastity. He's a best-selling author of more than 10 books, including Theology of the Body for Kids, How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul, and his latest, Male, Female, Other. Jason has two degrees from the Franciscan University of Steubenville, an undergraduate degree in counseling and theology, and a master's in theology. He is the founder of the Chastity Pro Project and a frequent guest on Catholic radio programs, as well as on Fox News, the BBC, MSNBC, and EWTN. What's that last one? EWTN. I don't know. I've, I've heard vague rumors. <laughs> <laughs> Jason and his wife, Kristalina, live in Arizona with their eight children. Jason Everett, thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, me too. Very much so, because uh, your expertise in dealing with young people, 
and this question of chastity and the, uh, the theology of the body, I'm sure is going to interest me, me, of course, but lots of our listeners who are parents, maybe even grandparents, and kind of struggle, like, how, how do you do this? Like, how do you raise this question with your kids or your grandkids? But before you do all that, everyone who comes on the show gets the same question. And so to the extent that you're comfortable, what is your journey of faith? Like, what? how did Jason get to this point now in his life? Yeah, well, I mean, the, I was raised by a good Catholic family, been blessed, you know, in, in the highest with that. I had grandparents who were married on one side for 67 years, on the other side for 70 plus years. Wow. One of my grandparents, they had 10 kids and their names were Joseph and Mary. So, I mean, you can't really beat that. So, I mean, <laughs> so, good Irish Catholic family. And then, um, you know, grew up in a Catholic household. We, you know, go to mass on Sunday, grace before meals. And that was pretty much the staples, you know, of devotion of the family. But just a consistent, loving set of parents was blessed with. And then, you know, towards the high school years, took a bit of a detour on my own, uh, where I kind of had friends at church, then friends who were decidedly not at church, to say the least, and kind of sitting on the fence in many respects. Um, for confirmation, I uh, was really blessed with a fantastic confirmation leader and youth minister who was deeply Eucharistic and Marian, and, you know, really got me into the habit of a uh, daily mass. Um, it was partly because there was a young lady attending daily mass that I was rather smitten by. So I thought, Hey, I'll get to know her. I'll go to daily mass too. And, uh, and, uh, you know, but, but now, you know, I don't know, 35 years after that, you know, still being able to keep up that devotion. I often say that daily mass is for people who have nothing better to do, um, because there's nothing better to do than the sacrifice to mass. So, um, but, you know, gradually got off the fence and was able to go to Franciscan University of Steubenville, uh, where I think that's where my faith really took off of not only being around so many faith-filled young Catholic college students, but faculty members who lived it out, who you would see there in the gym playing with their eight kids frisbee. And I remember coming back from a date one night, it must have been one o'clock in the morning, and my girlfriend and I just popped into some little Eucharistic Adoration Chapel downtown, totally empty except for one person at one in the morning, just sitting there with his Bible on his lap before the monstrance. And it was my teacher, Dr. Scott Hall. And I think I learned more in that one minute at three o'clock in the morning of just seeing him before the master with the scriptures on his lap receiving it taught me more than I learned in four years of sitting at his feet in the classroom. The guy, these guys don't just talk the talk, they walk it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, it was definitely a gradual process in terms of my conversion still underway and will be, um, but just really blessed a solid family, solid youth minister and a solid college, I think to get me where I am today. Yeah. That's, so family life is crucial, isn't it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, uh, one of the ways I think is that the family is so under attack nowadays because the family is the weapon kind of like that Tom Cruise, the Top Gun movie that came out, I don't know, a year or two ago. The whole plot of the movie was to take out the enemy's weapon. And I think that the weapon that God has given to the church is the family. And that's why it's so much under attack, because right. it's precisely the weapon that God wants to use to restore culture. And the, the whole question of teaching about the theology of the body and chastity, was that born at Franciscan when you were in college? Yeah, I was just starting to learn about it then. I was leading high school retreats at the time, and students would come up to me, and the kids would really open up to me about the struggles they were having. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it had to do with family life, chastity, relationships. And I realized they had no formation on that subject. But then at the same time, I was doing sidewalk counseling at an abortion clinic in Pittsburgh for three years, and I just started feeling late. 
Like, why am I meeting this woman and she's having an abortion in 45 minutes? Why couldn't I have met her when she was 15 years old? Because maybe if she learned about chastity then, she never would have been in the situation today. And it felt like everybody's focusing on the supply of abortion, but nobody's dealing with the demand for it. And I felt like I was kind of throwing sandbags on the banks of a flooded river when there's a dam broken upstream. And I could spend the rest of my life here doing this. But if I'm not going to the core of the issue to me, which was unchastity, which was fueling the demand of the abortion industry, then I wasn't getting to the root of the issue. Right. And it was at right. this time that I was learning love and responsibility, started sharing that with the young people, kind of saw the light bulb go on. And I realized this is the antidote to so much of this. Right. So if I were to ask you, define what the virtue of chastity is, how would you define it? I think first we don't want to distinguish what it's not. You know, it's different than abstinence, which is just the absence of sex. It's different from celibacy, which is the state of not being married. Chastity isn't so much what you're not doing. Um, it's a virtue that, you know, like courage or honesty that applies to your sexuality. And it doesn't eliminate our sexual desires. It orders them according to the demands of authentic human love. And so it's not simply what you do in the bedroom. It's my imagination, the music I listen to, the conversations I have. And the function of this virtue is to free us to love and to free us to know if we're being loved. And so it frees me to love because if I can't say no to my sexual impulses, then saying yes to them really means nothing. I can't make a gift of myself if I don't have self-mastery. So in that, I become free to love. But then it also makes you free to know if you're being loved because if a person's unwilling to be in a relationship with you, a dating relationship where you're not willing to do those things, and then they're gonna break up with you, it shows well, they never really wanted you to begin with. They just wanted the pleasure they were trying to get from you. And so it brings clarity to relationships. That's mm -hmm. why John Paul II said chastity can only be thought of in association with the virtue of love. So it's not this white knuckling, repressive, neurotic, unhealthy attitude towards sexuality, but it's really a full yes to the value of the human person. Right. And it just orders that sexual value in the right order beneath the personal value, whereas lust inverts those categories. So do you find with young people that they understand chastity in that white knuckle sort of understanding yeah it's just a litany of prohibitions to them it's just mm -hmm. no 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 and and i can't blame them because most of these kids i mean they get to college and by the time they get there it's like okay i've got this down i can't sleep with my girlfriend i can't live with my girlfriend can't have an abortion with my girlfriend can't look at pornography with my girlfriend can't can't clone my girlfriend i learned that in bioethics class like okay great like i know everything i can't do with a woman what am I supposed to do with one? Oh, we don't teach that. Good luck in college. Bye. And it's like we've succeeded in telling them what not to do, but we really haven't told them why and, uh, and, and how they should live. And so I think chastity fills that out. So it's kind of like what Steve Jobs said. He said that people don't know what they want until you show it to them. And I think until we show them chastity, they're not going to think that they want it. Okay. So paint us the picture. Show us chastity. I'm, I'm 18 years old. And yeah. I came to you and said, you know, I, you tell me I can't do this, can't do that. So I'm listening. Give yeah. what what'd oh. you say, Jason? <laughs> this one girl came up to me at a public high school talk, and she's dating this controlling, possessive, abusive guy, treats her like garbage. And I, I said, well, you deserve a lot better than him. Just break up with him. And she said, well, I can't break up. I've given him everything, my virginity, my reputation, my friends. I can't let go of all of that. And I said, look, I know it's tough, but just tell him no more sex. Start there and see what happens. 
And she said, okay, I can do that. And she took off her necklace and gave it to me. And she said, he makes me wear this. He's so possessive and controlling. And I said, okay, I'll throw it away for you. And she left. And then five minutes later, comes back, happy as can be. And she said, I dumped it. I said, oh, that was quick. And she said, yeah, I told him no more sex. And he slammed his locker shut. He threw a book at me. He said, where's your necklace? She said, I gave it to the chastity guy. And so it's like she, she tested his love. Like, do you love me? Or do you want me or do you only want the pleasure you're getting from me? And so that's why we've really got to mm -hmm. wed together chastity with this virtue of love. And if we fail to do that, it isn't going to last because the kids, if we try to motivate them and they've done studies on this because the rates of abstinence in, among American high school students for the last 30 years have been constantly going up. I mean, last year's numbers are the lowest they've ever seen before in terms of teen sexual activity, only 20% of high school students in America are currently sexually active. They've never seen numbers this low in the last three decades. And they ask the kids, why? Like, what, are you afraid of getting pregnant? Are you afraid of getting AIDS? And that's actually at the bottom of the list uh, for why they're choosing abstinence. The number one reply is that it's, it's against my religious and moral values. Number one reply nationwide. So teens are not motivated by the, the fear of negative consequences. They're more interested in the in potentially immediate positive benefits they could get from it. Right. And so we have to be able to, so to speak, sell chastity by tying it to authentic human love mm -hmm. if they're going to bite and mm -hmm. on it mm -hmm. and make it last. I must confess, Jason, I'm very happy to hear that statistic. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the increase in abstinence isn't necessarily an increase in virtue, though. So we don't want to read too much into that. You mm -hmm. might have kids being like, well, why do I need a girlfriend when I've got my cell phone and I've got pornography? I don't need a girlfriend. So I was wondering about that. Yeah. You know, and you've got a lot of young ladies declaring themselves to be asexual because all they've ever seen of human sexuality is what the guys are asking them for and what's on the phone. If that's what sexual intimacy is, that's not even who I am. My identity is asexual. And so you look at the data. Oh, abstinence rates are up. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that virtue is on the rise as well. Right. So I'm 19 years old and I've, I'm listening to what you're saying. How much is the my ability to have true self-love in the good sense a part of this equation for chastity? In other words, yeah. do I have to have a real sense of self-worth and, and self-respect and I call self-love to make this work? And if so, how do we address that question for young people? Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps because, for example, for a young woman, she'll never really convince a boy of her dignity until she first convinces herself. And if she doesn't really love herself, and by love, I don't mean be infatuated with yourself and think you've got the perfect figure and everything else, but love meaning to will the good of another. And in this case, willing the good at least of yourself, that's mm -hmm. got to be in place. Because mm -hmm. if it's not, then any sweet talking, smooth smelling guy that comes along, they, they call it rizzing now. That's what the teenager's calling it. The guy's rizzing the girl up, uh, that he's you know saying these flattering things in order to win her affection. Uh, I often say that men get seduced through the eyes, but the girls, it's more so through the ears. And so she's more likely to fall prey to these words of affirmation if she isn't getting that at home, especially if she doesn't have a tight relationship with her father. I mean, they grow up from the age of two. Daddy, do you love me? Do you want me? Do you notice me? Are you even going to be here for me? And if he's absent emotionally or physically or if he's abusive, she goes in the world and that question is not answered. 
And then the older guys show up. Yeah, I'd notice you. Yeah, I want you. It feels like it's making up for that missing love. And so, yeah, the self-love piece is an essential component. And it's tough when there's somebody coming from fractured families. One boy told me, he said, I know what you mean about divorce. He said, Jason, my dad's on his ninth marriage. Nine? Yeah, and the boy was 16 years old. Yep. Wow. Yeah, and you wonder why they're doing bad math class. Right. Yeah. So uh, pornography is so prevalent, right, among all, I mean, all of society. Uh, how does this factor into this question for young people yeah, or anybody for that matter? It's not just young people, right? Anybody. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the average age at which they first get exposed is somewhere between nine and 11 years old. And it's not just the boys anymore. Above the age of 30, there's a pretty good discrepancy in terms of who's viewing pornography, male versus female, obviously with the males leaning heavier into it. But below the age of 30, the numbers are almost even nowadays, which is hard to believe. But for mm. girls are stumbling upon this stuff, you know, partly out of curiosity. Okay, what do I need to look like? And what do I need to do? And who do I need to be? Uh, and then they get drawn into this whole world of comparisons and the boys are looking at the girls for these lust goggles. Like they don't even know how to look at a woman except through the lens of lust. And they think, oh, but I'll throw it away before I get married. But what ends up happening is obvious between the husband and the wife. If he doesn't have reverence for other women or sexuality, he's not gonna have it for his bride. But then for the poor kids, I mean, one girl told me, she said, Jason, I found out my dad looked at, looks at pornography. She said, I used to look up to him. Now I can't even look at him. I thought he was a better man than that. She's like, Jason, my dad's lusting after girls who are like two years older than I am while my mom's sleeping in the next room. Then he erases internet history, thinks we don't know, and kisses my mom and goes to work the next day. She said, it makes me sick how much I resent that guy. And so the, the fallout that happens from this is generational in its impact. And so that's why it's not, can't just be like, oh, those randy little teenagers. It's like, no, no, no. This is cancer throughout marriages. This is destroying things. And a lot of these husbands are gaslighting the women into thinking, well, I'm not actually doing it. You're just too uptight. And I've got to do this because you're not as available as you should be. And so he's, he's putting all of the blame on her. Like you are the cause of my addiction, which men have pretty much been doing for thousands of years anyway. I mean, she's the seductress. She's the occasion of sin. You're the trigger of my lust instead of owning what needs to be healed in that guy. And so as parents, we got to become vigilant. You got to become computer literate. I mean, some of the parents... I mean, God bless them, but like they don't even know how to open an email attachment. And their kid is like hacking into the Pentagon's website for fun <laughs> after school. Like we got to catch up and protect the family. Right, right. So uh, let's let's segue because we spend a lot of time talking about young people and rightfully so. But if the insight of the director on catechesis is that the, our catechetical efforts have to be aimed at adults. So let's apply that same principle here. Yeah. Right. Um, what's your read of the landscape of the adult population in our church vis-a-vis -vis this question of chastity and and then we could segue on to the theology of the body, but of chastity in particular. It's is it a topic that comes up in conversation, discussion, catechesis yeah. among uh, among uh, older folk? Our old, we who are the older folk. Yeah, of no, the flock. If, if you're talking about catechesis and chastity for Catholic adults, it's like what? Like, no, 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 sorry. That, that didn't happen. I mean, the parents come to me and the conversation is this. Where were you when I was 18? Where were you when I was in college? I could have used this 30 years ago. I would have picked a different spouse. I wouldn't have ended up in that relationship. Or 
pregnant with this, you know, like everything would have been different if I had heard this 20, 30 years ago. So there's, there's this massive void that, and, and the challenge for the parents, it's like, okay, this was never given to me. And now I need to deliver it to my teen because I'm the primary sex educator. Hopefully they realize that, but they were never taught this. And now they have to deliver it to teens during a time that seems like it's more difficult than ever for the kids to be pure. So the parents need to step up and be able to speak because if you don't, the world will just fill the void of that silence with a very contrary message. But more important than just talking to your kids about it, you got to live it out. I mean, your kids aren't always going to obey you, but they'll never fail to imitate you. And I mean, like, what am I going to tell my kid? Like, you need to obey the church's teachings on sex before marriage, but your mom and I, eh, we don't need to listen to what your church has to say about sexuality inside of marriage. It's like, mm, these virtues are more easily caught than they are taught. So the parents need to live it out, not just send the kids off to some Catholic youth group and hope they'll do all the catechesis. Yeah, you see, that's, that, that's a very interesting and important distinction because my sense is a lot of parents in our schools and in our faith formation programs, and just in general, in our parishes, they want to be given the language to talk to their young people, their children, about this topic. But you're raising a very important distinction, is that before or even while you are talking the language to them, you yourself as an individual need to be living this virtue of chastity. Yeah. Right? In your own state of life, whatever that may be. Yeah. <clears throat> so if that's the case, and it is... <coughs> how do we how do we address this vacuum in the church like what do we do to get well, people to to really kind of in, in look within themselves and say well am i living <coughs> chastely yeah it, it's a challenge because a lot of times we would give these chastity talks and the parents would drop the kids off and disappear and then pick them up two hours later and we change mm -hmm. like no 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 the parents need to come with the kids and they need to hear this presentation we're giving and that way on the way home you guys can have conversations because it's not about like having the talk you know when do i give my kid the talk like it's some chastity bomb you drop on your kid when he's 13 it's gonna like inoculate him from lust forever it doesn't work like that and we don't do that with english we don't do it with math like when do i give my kid the math talk when do we have the history you know conversation it's like no this is you get a decade of formation in this before they go to college it's got to be the same way in human sexuality this is not about a talk it's about a lifelong conversation so hopefully even when they're married they can talk to you about chastity inside of marriage family planning and all those things that's the long-term game plan is let this get this conversation going and so i would recommend to the parents like you've got to learn this you've got to understand why does the church teach what she teaches on family planning questions, on pornography and marriage, on this, on that. Uh, you can get books like Christopher West has one called Good News About Sex and Marriage. I've got one called Pure Intimacy, talks about NFP and marriage. Uh, learn this stuff, because it's not about just like learning what I need to tell my kid. It's like, no, I need to be sold out on this myself. Because yeah, we can right. sit around the dinner table and bless us, O Lord, and these I gifts. Okay, great. Okay, he's Lord of the, the dining room table. Is he Lord in the bedroom too? He has to be Lord of the entire home for this faith to really sink in through osmosis mm -hmm. like it should be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So chastity within married life. Mm -hmm. Paint the picture. Well, I think that we begin by, well, what is the purpose and meaning of human sexuality? Well, mm -hmm. I mean, the purpose is babies and bonding, but the meaning of it is it's the wedding vows made flesh, that you stood on that altar and you promised that your love would be free and it'd be total, it would be faithful, it would be ordered towards procreation. Uh, and then you go off on your honeymoon and you speak those wedding vows in your body. 
I give my body to you freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully. And so anything that contradicts those wedding vows in the bedroom would be violating that, that virtue of chastity. And, and so, okay, what does that look like? Okay, well, uh, my love is free. Okay, am I so dominated by my own hormones that I can't make a free gift of myself to my wife that I actually see her as an outlet of my lust that always needs to be available for me? That's not a free gift because I need to have that self-control. Okay, is, is it total or am I holding back my own fatherhood? Is it faithful or is my imagination, my heart, my eyes somewhere else? You know, is it fruitful or is it deliberately contracepted, sterilized and aborted? And when couples hear this, they're like, okay, well, well, you had me up until that, you know, faithfulness, all that other good jazz, but like, what are we supposed to have? You know, 10 kids, 15 kids, supposed to use the rhythm method. What did that have a failure rate of 30%? I mean, I'm a fan of that because my parents tried it in the 1970s and it didn't work and I'm here today. And so that's a good deal for me, but <laughs> we want to plan our family, you know, we can use natural family planning. And it's not that that's the default, you know, like, oh, good Catholics use NFP and bad Catholics contraceptive. No, no, no. Good Catholics realize children are the supreme gift of marriage. The default position is openness towards life. And if we have a serious reason not to have another pregnancy, then we can fall back on NFP if we need that. It's not that NFP is the default. And so, but the blessings you get from learning these methods. I mean, I, I did a podcast recently with college girls that have started fertility awareness methods on their college campus, not because they're engaged or about to get married, but because they should know their own reproductive health and, and be able to chart and know what's going on. And you've got sorority girls, non-Catholic girls joining this thing, having conversions by rediscovering with awe how their bodies have been created that they were never taught in seventh grade public school sex ed class. And so it's so good for a husband and wife to learn these things together. You get the health benefits, you get to avoid the side effects of the other stuff. And couples who use it have a divorce rate under 4%. And so the church is on to something here. We just have to have the humility to trust our mother, the church, instead of telling our kids to obey her and think we're somehow exempt. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to have a break soon. At this question, you may not be able to answer totally on this side of the break. Okay, so um, Steve always gives us the high sign. But if I'm a Catholic, married, 35, love my wife, and I'm listening to you now, and you're talking about natural family planning, and in my pre-cana, which was probably, I don't know, a day, some diocesan event, and you know they may have mentioned it, they may have not mentioned it. Okay, so what's your introduction for me, married man, with a natural family planning and this whole concept of what you just talked about, uh, being open to life? Yeah. Well, one of the things that sold me on NFP is it really taught me that my wife's body is perfect. She doesn't need pills. She doesn't need shots. She doesn't need drugs. She doesn't need implants and barriers. Her body needs to be understood. And so if we can just understand her fertility, then instead of suppressing it with chemicals to conform to our desires, we conform our desires to the perfect way her body has ever already been created. It's authentic sexual liberation. I knew of one couple that had a conversion, stopped contracepting, started charting a cycle. Husband looked at it, honey, something looks wrong there. Took her to the doctor and the doctor said, you, your, uh, your husband is correct. Something's wrong on the chart. I think it's your, your thyroid. Go get that looked at today. 
She did. They found out she had a cancerous thyroid tumor and they operated the next day and saved her life because it's almost like we're resisting the churches and God's plan for families. She, the mom said it was like holding an umbrella over our heads. All these blessings we were not receiving because we were blocking them. But then when we got rid right. of it, the blessings came in. And so all I knew to know, is it best for my wife's body? Okay, we're doing it. I don't need the theology. I don't need the philosophy. It's good for her. It's good for us. Let's go. So it's an act of love. Exactly. To do that. Okay. And that's what you're saying chastity is. It's it's a positive. It's not a, a negative or or chains or, or restrictions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, this is Let Me Be Frank. His Excellency is speaking with Jason Everett, founder of the Chastity Project at chastity.com. And we will be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Um, Jason, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to ask you a quick question before I turn it back over to the bishop. Um, there's been a, a rise recently, which I'm sure you've seen, in uh, men who are becoming social media phenomena and who are kind of preaching this basically toxic masculinity, which thousands of young boys, teenagers and whatnot are are watching and subscribing to. And it's, you know, it's across all, I mean, it's even happening in good Catholic families too, that, you know, they're watching these guys. What's been your experience with that? Yeah, I think usually when you have something that it's filling a void, there's an empty space that something is rushing into. And I think so before we just swiftly condemn, you know, these these online influencers, I think we'll, what is the deep truth that they're tapping into? What is this legitimate unmet need that they're addressing and overcorrecting? And it's this, it's this lack of authentic masculinity, just this, it's almost as if, you know, second wave, third wave feminism came through and scared everybody out of being a man. It's like, okay, like, okay, I'll back off. I'm, I'm not going to initiate anything. I, I don't want to be called a chauvinist. 
And but then there's this lack of masculinity, and then all these new podcasters and online influencers come in, as you said, with these toxic ideas of masculinity. And the young men are kind of gravitating to the decisiveness of these people to be a beast, initiate, make a business, get up at 4 a.m. and work out and do all this stuff. Like, so there's a lot of good stuff that's going on there, but it's just laced with a lot of misogynistic uh, intent behind it of, of viewing women as just things to be used for our gratification, like get your car, get your beautiful woman, get your mansion, get all get all your stuff together. It reminds me of uh, our beloved bishop here in Phoenix, Bishop Olmsted, wrote a document <laughs> called Into the Breach, where he talks about authentic Catholic masculinity. And in there, he talks about James Bond, you know, as this idea of this machismo guy. And he just points out it's a really ironic name of Bond, considering he hasn't formed any of them. It looks like zing, like no bonds with children, no bonds with women, uh, just adventure using women and on to the next. And to me, it's the image of what Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas defined effeminacy as, and this is not same-sex attraction, this is not femininity, which is a good thing. Effeminacy, he said, is when a man refuses to let go of what is pleasurable in order to do what is arduous or difficult. So it's an inordinate attachment to pleasure. That's what makes a man effeminate. And so what we're seeing in these online influencers is a very machismo facade of like, I've got my Lamborghini, I've got my girlfriends, I've got my millions, I've got my tan, I've got my muscles. Um, yeah, but can you resist the smallest temptation of, of sensuality? Uh, because you might look masculine on the outside, but be deeply effeminate. And so I think it's been an overcorrection and what's needed is a restoration uh, you know, of God's view of what masculinity is, which we see in the saints, which we see in St. Joseph, this man who, yes, had strength, but he used it to serve and he, not to dominate. And he used it to, to conquer, not women for the sake of himself, but himself for the sake of others. And ultimately right. used his strength to sacrifice right. and make a gift of himself. Right. You know, I've always thought that that's that's a very interesting insight. I've always thought that the perfect image of what a male is could be found in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is the perfect human being, but he was also male. And you look at the qualities of the Lord. So the Lord was decisive. The Lord was forceful. The Lord was merciful. The Lord cried at the death of his of his friend. I mean, these are all qualities that fit into what I would consider to be a man who's trying to live his his life in the imitation of the Lord. And it's I think some of the stereotypes that society has created is feeding this too, mm -hmm. isn't it? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you look at the Jesus for he looks like he spends two hours a day brushing his hair you know, and playing with lambs and stuff. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> read the gospels. It says, you know, that he was making a whip of cords. Like I can imagine what the apostles saw, like, what are you doing there, Jesus? Are you making Yeah, well, get out of my way. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> like we had a summer camp. He's like, no, 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 I'm making a whip. I'm like, what? What do you do with that? Like, so, <laughs> so we have a man, like you said, who was decisive. He initiated this gift of life giving love. You know, he mm -hmm. wasn't mm -hmm. passive and afraid of what others would think and mm -hmm. ultimately cost him his life. But yeah. So mm -hmm. like in becoming man, he didn't just reveal God to us. He kind of revealed us to ourselves. Right. Right. So, so let's go back then to the, the, the basic question about chastity. All right. So um, for a young person who is living in a time when the question of gender 
is in many circumstances up for grabs where it, there's not clarity. And like in, when I was young, a thousand years ago, there was clarity, but there was also a lot of stereotypes mm -hmm. too going on. But there, there's not clarity. So how does that young person deal with the question of chastity when they're also dealing with the question of gender? Like how do you... Yeah. Isn't that already a barrier before you even get to the question of chastity? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's a huge struggle. Everywhere I go, I'm meeting the high school kids struggling with it. Not just in the public schools, the Catholic schools. A girl came up to me recently and she said, yeah, I just told my mom that I'm bisexual and she got all angry at me. So now I'm afraid because I don't know how to tell her I'm non-binary also because she's going to flip out even more about that. Another girl came up. She said, yeah, I just told my mom I'm non-binary and she was screaming at me and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I sit down with these kids and I said, okay, well, let, let's try the conversation again. I'm going to be your mom. You be you. I want you to explain to me what you mean about the experience of feeling that you're non-binary, but you're not allowed to say the word non-binary. Now go. And she said, okay, well, I want to be able to do things that guys sometimes do. And I don't always want to be defined by what girls want and how they want to act because I feel like I don't always fit in with that. I'm like, okay, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. Your mom wouldn't have flipped out about any of this stuff, but she hears this label non-binary. It's like, nope, nope, you're XX and that's all there is to it. We're hitting these stumbling blocks with language because the young people are, are searching and grasping for a vocabulary that will resonate with their lived experience. And if their lived experience is these overly rigid gender stereotypes that if you're a real man, you got to fit into this box, you're a woman, you got to fit in that box. I don't fit in. Well, then you're just not part of the club. It's almost like feminism cannibalized itself, that it was so eager to throw away all the, the stereotypes. Now they're being defined by them of just like, hey, you don't fit the stereotype. Well, maybe you're not even a woman to begin with. And so it's almost right. like a snake that kind of starts eating its tail and then it gets all the way up to its head. And it's like, well, what do I do now? Um, that's where the position right. is at. I mean, I just mm -hmm. saw on the news, Fox News was at a bicycle race in Chicago for a women's bicycle race was just won by two men. Um, and the women are like, <laughs> what's the point of even competing at this point? So yeah, these right. kids are struggling with stuff that wasn't on the radar 20 years ago. It was on the radar, but we had language for it, like tomboy. It's not even in the vocab anymore. So it's like, I can't be right. anything other than stereotypical. So I, I guess I'm just not part of the club. So yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a more foundational thing that they're wrestling with now. Their sexuality is who they are. Rather, sexuality is something that they do. Yeah, so in a sense, the stereotypes that have been so prevalent in our society for so long are a major contributing factor to this question because they are, they're receiving it and therefore in some way, shape or form in a culture where you kind of also are the author or, or of, of your own kind of way of going through life, they are reacting just like you said, which you said very well. So there has to be more of a societal question too about what is therefore the portrait, like we said about a man or a woman, what is it ultimately as a society we say are the traits that are shared by the two genders, perhaps have more prevalence in one over the other, but all the other stereotypes that we live with really don't help in this question. They just make it more confused. Yeah, I mean, right? the, the most masculine man I've ever met, uh, and I got to see him 24 times, was a man deeply passionate about theater and poetry and the arts, and his name was St. John Paul II. 
And I've never been around a more masculine man than he was. But thank be to God, he didn't grow up in a culture that told him if he's into theater and poetry and arts, he's just not one of the guys. He wasn't burdened by these overly rigid gender stereotypes. Because when the young people are, what you'll find is it's almost like gender stereotypes try to get a person to conform their personality to match their body. So your body is male, your personality better fit into that. Gender theory makes the opposite error. It tries to get a person to conform their body to match their personality, meaning your personality is a little bit more feminine. Well, let's augment the body to fit the personality. But neither one to me is a healthy approach. I read one feminist and she said, look, a woman is a person with a female body and any personality not a quote-unquote female personality and any body. And so all this confusion, I think, is giving us an unprecedented opportunity to rediscover what it means to be human, to rediscover that our bodies are not meaningless, they're meaningful. Okay, so what does it mean to be a human person then? You just raised the question. I want you to answer the question. Yeah. Tell us. Well, <laughs> well person is, you know, the philosophical definition, individual substance of a rational nature. Okay, well, what I would have, okay, a rational being. Okay, that's mm -hmm. a little clear. Well, how many different kinds of rational beings are there? Well, there's three. There's divine persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's angelic persons, the angels and the demons. And then there's human persons made male and female in the image and likeness of God. And so if you're a human person who experiences gender dysphoria or same-sex attractions or this or that, what is your identity? Is it L and G and B and T and Q, I, A plus? Your identity is your beloved son or daughter of God. It's the deepest truth is who you are, is love. You are created by love and you have been created and your body reveals you're created for love, to make a gift of yourself in love. It's stamped into your body. And that's why this whole gender thing to me is trying to erase the spousal meaning of the body, that our bodies don't reveal complementarity, they reveal competition. And so to get rid of the competition, just erase sexual distinctions and then we're all free. But that's like this Marxist framework for how to just eliminate any distinctions and then get rid of the classes and then, then we won't have the struggle. But no, we look at the human body as a complementarity in the creation. And in that shows that we're called to love. So, so then, in effect, our bodies are the grammar of who we are mm -hmm. in a way. You know, we've talked about this. Steve and I have talked about this in other venues. It's interesting. Like if you look at, a, a, if you read St. Thomas, two of the most basic senses, right? So intuition and common sense are bodily functions. They're not necessarily, they're, they're mediated. So when you walk into a room and you sense something is wrong, you're sensing it through your body. Mm -hmm. So you, it's not a mental, it's not first and foremost a mental uh, faculty it's a corporeal one that then really is is expressed right verbally or expressed within your own awareness of yourself so your body is essentially you is really what we're saying yeah, yeah. right and there and, and it, it exists in such a way between men and women male and female so that they fit mm -hmm. Together, yeah, and I think it's really in a sense, and not just physically, but fit together, mm -hmm. psychologically, right? vocationally, yeah, spiritually, mm -hmm. exactly, and that reveals deeper theological truths. But I think it's important right now that we also focus on the fact that our sexual differences are not just revealed in our reproductive organs. I think a lot of gender mm -hmm. theory tries to kind of isolate it. Well, that's where that's at. No, 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 every single cell of the human body that has a nucleus is sexed. Our senses are completely different. That women 
I mean, their ears, they have microscopic hair cells that vibrate with a different intensity than the man's does, which amplifies her ability to detect nuances and inflections in the human voice. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Even the sense of smell that women have 7 million more cells in the olfactory bulb of their nose, which amplifies their capacity for distinguishing scents. You know, a mom will walk into her teenage boy's room and be like, what died in here? And the boy's like, I don't know, sounds, it smells good to me. Like the smell's more sensitive, the hearing sensitive. They can see shades of color that are imperceptible to the male eye, even on the skin. They've done studies where they found that the least sensitive female in terms of her skin was still more sensitive than the most sensitive guy was. There was literally no overlap in terms of the sensitivity of the skin. Then you look at the hearing, the sight, the voice, everything. It reveals that God has created us male or female down to our very souls and that this is a good thing. But this is why we can't change our sex. You'd have to change every cell of the human body. Of the body. You know what I find always ironic? I must confess, you talked about toxic masculinity and all the rest of it. It is a fact, it's a scientific fact, that the pain that women endure in childbirth wouldn't be unbearable for a man to bear. It, it wouldn't be or would be? In other words, women can endure pain oh, yeah. on, on a level far greater than any man could. Well, I don't know, Bishop, because the, the chair that I had to sit in in the delivery room is really uncomfortable. I'm trying to sleep on that. I mean, women get all the credit with labor pains, but those chairs they give the husband. So those, is that vicarious, oh, vicarious labor They get pain? all the attention, but those chairs are just unbelievably uncomfortable. We don't get epidurals. We don't get a coach or nothing. So, yeah. But, but 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 I but I, and I could be wrong, and our listeners are great in, in correcting facts. But I distinctly remember learning that even in my collegiate career, yeah. and physically. So, it, and if that is true, then we say about men enduring and suffering and all that. But actually, women can endure more. Yeah. No, I mean, really think about it. If men were the ones who had to carry a baby full term and deliver the baby. There'd probably be fifteen people on Earth today if we were exactly, <laughs> exactly. But that's part of the myth, right? That's part of the stereotype. Exactly, right? Exactly. <clears throat> all right. So, uh, given everything we talked about, even with the question of gender and all and all the rest that's going on, um, what advice would you give to like a person like me, who's a bishop of a diocese, or any of my brothers? in dealing with the people of the diocese and trying to help them meander this whole complicated world. So what advice would you give me and like the leaders of our parishes in trying to help our people to, to navigate? Uh, Any ideas? I remember Pope Francis said something that really stuck with me, that marriage preparation begins at birth. And I think as a church in the last century, or I don't know how long, we've really relegated marriage prep to something you do six months before your wedding day. Okay, let's get the classes in order. But but at that point, it's really not marriage prep. It's triage at that point. Uh, that person should have been getting marriage prep as a sixth grader. They should have gotten it as a sophomore in high school. We've got to look at our vocations as something not simply we're preparing them for right in the seminary or right before they have their like, pre-canal weekend. Uh, we've got to start doing marriage prep for first graders, second graders. And obviously, it's got to be an age-appropriate formation of the human person, but start to look at it from more of a long-term lens instead of an, an immediate, what do we do for the next six months? In, in terms of the gender topic, it's a very mystifying territory to walk into because it's like, okay, trans, masculine, gender, fluid, non 
non-binary demi boy. Like, what the heck is that? Like, it, it just makes people just want to just dismiss and throw the whole thing out. But for the Catholics who are in the pews, who experience gender dysphoria, and they're there, and I'm having routine emails and conversations with these individuals, they often feel completely invisible. And a lot of these, like I, I was corresponding with one, he's a Catholic husband, father, military guy, wife, kids, and he's wrestled with gender dysphoria his entire life, still tempted to transition, still going to Sunday mass. And you would never have a clue sitting next to this guy that he's wrestling with this thing. But if he hears the guys in the parish joking around, oh, do you see that tranny on TV? Like, okay, all right, I see where you Catholics are coming at it from this from. Why would I ever want to open up? There's no space for me in the church whatsoever to navigate through these struggles. And so we need to realize we can't treat this like leprosy. You go on that side of the street, I'll go on this side of the street. We've got to enter into these individuals' lives and help them know the church sees them. The church knows they didn't choose to feel this distress. And the church knows that it's not simply a matter of just, we'll just say another rosary and it should go away. I mean, their holiness is not measured by their ability to mitigate their feelings of dysphoria. But the church, we might not have all the answers to figure out, um, but we're going to walk with them in it. And we're going to just, they don't so it's want someone with all the answers. They just want someone to walk with them in love. Right. And so our the idea is hold on to their hand with one hand, hold on to reality with the other hand, and don't you let go of either hand. Do not compromise the church's teachings on human anthropology for the sake of being politically correct. In the same respect, we can't let cling so fast where it's just about debating these people. We've got to enforce church teaching. Hey, what about the pastoral piece? We got to have charity wedded to clarity, and that's what's needed in this issue more than anything. Yeah, well, I love that charity versus uh, wedded to clarity. It's what we've been talking about for a very long time here in the podcast with all different guests. It's I call it false choices. Yeah. You can't choose one or the other because the Lord never yeah, did that. Yeah, misguided right? We can't do mm -hmm. it either. But of course, that in and of itself raises issues of ongoing conversion of our communities. Yeah. Because the truth is, not every person in the pew will understand exactly what you just yeah. said. And they may be very apt to judge mm -hmm. that process of accompaniment. He's soft. He's part of the culture. Yeah. He's like, he's a renegade. He's a, or she, or whatever it may be. And of course the Lord went through the same thing, but, but it's, it's, so then who accompanies the accompanies yeah. is the other question I have. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's unfortunate <laughs> that the idea of a listening church has been so misused to promote ambiguity when there's so much strength and if we can listen, you know, while holding fast to orthodoxy of, yeah, let's talk about this stuff. I need to know where you're coming from. What does it sound like when you hear this stuff come from the pulpit? Well, I feel like, well, you don't understand us and you're using that language and that doesn't describe me or my experience. If we're not listening to them, we're tone deaf mm -hmm. and it's going to show up in the documents right. of the church. Right. And so we can't right. afford to live in our little, you know, ivory towers of orthodoxy. Yeah. We're never going to leave with the church teaches and we always need to hold fast to that but mm -hmm. we've got to be mm -hmm. able to smell like the sheep and obviously it's very troubling for me as a catholic lay person to see people within the episcopate you know endorsing stuff that wait a minute that's not what the church teaches you know speak up you know i remember being at one conference and someone asked i don't know if it was a bishop or someone with the bishop they said what percentage of bishops do you think are really faithful to jesus christ and the church and the speaker said something pretty bold. He said, well, it's kind of the same proportions as Calvary. You know, one is going to be at the foot of the cross with Our Lady. One will outright betray him with a kiss, and ten are nowhere to be found. 
And so we need, I think, as bishops, as priests, as lay people to speak up on this with charity. Oh, now I have something to examine my conscience on tonight. Jeez, where do I land in that? <laughs> no, but but uh, yeah. So no, you're speaking. That's you, 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 you've confirmed something in my mind, I must confess. And it is, I've always held that these sort of topics, when you gather adults together, these sort of topics need to be presented and then need to be talked about in the same event. Mm -hmm. You can't just present, you got to give people an opportunity to wrestle with, with, the, with the nuance, with the detail, and if, if it is done well, with their own personal experiences, mm -hmm. right? You can't just present something and say, take it or leave it. It doesn't work that way. And adults don't learn that way. And what we're really talking about is learning from the heart. It's not just learning the mind, it's learning from the heart. So in our planning here, we're planning multiple opportunities in the category of truth, right? Truth, beauty, and goodness to try to help our adults kind of wrestle with things. And um, of course, this whole question of gender is going to be one of them. And there is other, even apologetics in general, right? We've talked about that. Um, so I may be calling you, my friend, but that's a whole no, other story, welcome to right? You. Yeah, but to have someone present and then lead people with the, with the, because the devil's in the mm -hmm. details in a sense, to struggle with the nuance, and many times it's personal. Yeah. So the theory is one thing, but if it's, it's my son or daughter who's mm -hmm. going through it, it's a totally yeah. different world, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Oh, right? my goodness. I mean, I've met so many devout, wonderful Catholic families who have kids have gone into this, and it's like, what did I do wrong? And they start beating themselves up. But it's, it's so important to hear their stories, their kids' stories. That's why when I wrote the book on gender, I didn't just send it to professors of philosophy and pediatric medicine and you know, endocrinology, I sent it off to people in the trans community. Tell me what you think, tear this to pieces and send it back to me. And they made literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of edits to the manuscript, some of which I couldn't accept because it would compromise church cheating. But I was like, you know what? You're right. I nuanced that very poorly. And yes, I did misunderstand your, your position on that. Mm -hmm. But it is mm -hmm. so much more stronger of a document because of them. And I was so great, grateful to them that they are willing to go through. And, you know, at the end of the day, you don't see eye to eye on everything. But if I'm not willing to listen, no. I'm twice as stupid. Right, 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 right. Because the truth is not always yeah. clear until you walk the mm -hmm. journey. It's like Emmaus, yeah. right? It takes a while until you, a person can actually say, okay, so now I really do understand what it is the Lord is asking of yeah. me. Yeah, and right, I, I learn right. learn with every single conversation I have, especially with that community, how much more I still have mm -hmm. to learn for where they're coming from. Okay, so I think we only have like thirty okay. seconds. The Chastity Project. Give us what yeah, is the, it? The website is chastity.com. We do chastity presentations, mm -hmm. social media stuff. We've got more than twenty books that people can get um, in bulk discount if they want to get. If they can't afford it, we'll give it to you for free. We got a website called Missionaries of Chastity.com. So just go to chastity.com. You can get in touch there with our books on chastity, breaking free from pornography, raising teenagers, dating chastity, all the stuff at chastity.com, and the podcast Lust Is Boring. It's all there. Great. Well done. Jason, no, thank it's a you. Blessing to be on. Okay. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I wish this conversation could go on for like three hours, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're going to take uh, our final break and we'll come back on the other side with a listener question. His Excellency has been speaking with Jason Everett, founder of the Chastity Project at chastity.com. Be right back. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. 
Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, here is this week's listener question. It says, uh, simply, I noticed that on weekdays there is no Old Testament reading. Why is that? Well, it's interesting. Uh, the only time I'm aware of where there are no Old Testament readings, I presume in the, uh, in the celebration of Mass, is uh, at Easter, at Easter season, when we read through the Acts of the Apostles. But in fact... Um, in the lectionary, there's ample c- citations and selections from the Old Testament. And of course, in the Easter season, because we're celebrating the birth of the church too. So, so I'm not exactly sure what context the question is, what, what it's referring to. But generally speaking, the Old Testament is yeah, right. I'm going to jump right? out on a limb and say that they meant there's no epistle. No second. Yeah. That oh. would make more sense, right, of a question? Yeah, and 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 because the church is merciful <laughs> during daytime, daily mass. <laughs> no, but if you're going to mass every day, right? You, you want to be able to read the scriptures and pray over the scriptures, be fed by the scriptures. But you've got 365 days to do it, so you don't have to do it all in one felt swoop. Is my point. There you go. All right, so if you have a question mm-hmm. for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work at Foundations in Faith. Dot org. Jason Everett, like I said, I mean, we could listen to you for hours. This was very outstanding. So thank you very much for joining us. No, Give us the website again. Thank you. It's just chastity.com. Easy yeah. to remember. <laughs> well done. Jason, thank you for your time. And thank you for your ministry and service okay. to the church. Because that ministry is very much needed. Well, thank very you for much. your prayers. Yeah, so let's pray actually, No. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit bless Jason, his ministry, those who collaborate with him, to bless our listeners in these very challenging times, to bless all those in leadership in the church, that this may be a time of courageous witness and to be joyful heralds of the message of truth and liberation and freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. We ask that you bless us all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, my friends. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Jason. All the best. Thank you.